Bank of Clark County is making it easy to give to local charities. We're featuring a different one at each of our Bank of Clark County locations. To find out how you can support their good work, visit our website at www.bankofclark.bank or follow us on our social media channels and the hashtag GiveWithBOCC. Bank of Clark County. Member FDIC. Does preaching matter? This is episode 86 of En Route. Welcome to En Route, the podcast at the intersection of Church and Maine. I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. I hope that you've all had a good Easter. Wasn't the at least sunniest Easter here in, in Minnesota, but again, it's Minnesota. Easter is kind of a crapshoot when it comes to weather here. Well, Methodist bishop and, and writer Will Williman, who happens to be one of my favorite authors, has had this to say about preaching. He says the following, Preaching is an attack. It is an invasion from Jesus into an unbelieving world. So preaching isn't the most important part of the worship service. And I know that for a fact. And if I forget, my husband, who is a church musician, will remind me. But it does have an important role. And that is that it helps Christians remember who they are and whose they are. So, Willeman is right that preaching is about Jesus coming into an unbelieving world, but how do you preach that in an age where people don't trust institutions, especially institutions like the church? Well, for Pastor Brian Christopher Coulter, preaching means restoring trust. Brian's the pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Fort Worth, Texas, where he is, and he is also a minister of Word and Sacrament in the Presbyterian Church USA. He it works as he also does some consulting for the Presbyterian Mission Agency. He's a regular contributor to the Presbyterian Outlook magazine, and he's also uh, done preaching on uh, the Day Day One podcast. In this episode, we talk about the craft of preaching and what it means to preach in these very interesting times. Now, before we go into the interview, just one note. I may sound a little bit different, a little bit odd um, in the interview, and that was because I was uh, battling what, for for me, tends to be the usual post-Easter cold Um, that seems to happen with pastors We go through Holy Week, and then we get a cold. That happened to me. So, with that, let's listen to Brian Christopher Coulter. Mm -hmm. 
Well, thank you, Brian, for taking the time uh, to talk uh, to me today. Yeah, Dennis, good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Well, I want to talk to the article um, that was in uh, the Presbyterian Outlook about rebuilding trust. And it was a fascinating article because I think it's it's kind of really talking about how do we preach in this time. Um, so it's, you know, trying to connect what our preaching is to the world around us. How would you kind of describe the times that we live in? And that would say that you have to use, talk about trust within your sermons. Yeah, Dennis, thank you. Um, so the times are, are a little different than they used to be, aren't they? Um, when I first um, heard those words, so uh, the quote that I loved in there was uh, Paul Scott Wilson said, uh, in four pages of the sermon, um, uh, every age has to find a new way to revitalize the preaching task. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just thought that revitalization of the preaching task Oh man, that's, that's hard. <laughs> I'm still trying to figure out the the nuts and bolts of preaching, let alone how to revitalize it. And so I uh, heard it when I was up in Chicago, I was doing some studies up there um, and it just kind of struck me, um, spent some time with him, spent some time with um, some other great preaching professors up there. And you're kind of humbled by that. Um, this was, gosh, this was five, six years ago. And I struggled with it then. What was our role in uh, figuring out how to revitalize the preaching task and talking about it now, just a few years later, like who would have thought the world would have shifted so much, um, but it has. And so um, right now, I think our challenge is so much uh, more palpable and we just feel it. Um, so if you want to talk about um, the need for rebuilding trust um, and what's happened just in the last decade with the church, I mean, think about all the, um, toxicity that's come out. Think of all the cover-ups that have come out. Um, I, I'm on the um, RNS, the Religion News Service, emails and all those things. And I, I mean, it's weekly. You get another horrible story about the way some church mishandled something or even worse, covered up something or participated in something. Um, and so you get thing after thing coming on the newsfeed now. And it's such a good thing that it's coming out. Mm -hmm. We can address some stuff and deal with some stuff. But with that, um, people are losing even what little trust they might have had left with institutions and with church in general. And um, yeah, so I think it's, it's magnified quite a bit recently. And so um, just that distrust of things going on there. Um, I, I think the pandemic itself um, fanned the flames that either, depending on who you talk to, were either... Um, raging fire or uh, smoldering ashes i'm not sure but it definitely fanned the flame quite a bit um and it um, brought everyone's perhaps emotions more to the surface um mm -hmm. and so we got a lot more uh, people feeling their feelings out loud i guess or uh, feeling their feelings on on book face or whatever you know and so um i think it just kind of got out there a little bit more and so um the distrust um kind of spread got the fan flamed a little bit there. And then um, on top of that, I mean, the the great resignation that they talk about, it it hit us as well in the church. And so um, I think more and more um, pastors are leaving the ministry. And I, I used a word in the article and I got a, I'll give a caveat. I used the word, I said, um, um, abdication. And so um, I got some uh, very angry hurt words coming at me after I wrote the article from people who felt like I used the wrong word there. Um, abdication can mean um, kind of a failure to live up to a calling 
And I think that's how they heard it. It's not how I mm. meant it. Um, I meant it more of a kind of renouncing of the throne is kind of the way it's talked about sometimes. And so um, I meant it more as people are giving up the pulpit and they are, I mean, more and more people are leaving the ministry um, every day. And so um, with the big shifts that have happened in labor all over, it's affected the church also. And so a lot of people have left the church. Um, there are fewer pastors than there used to be, um, not just retirements, but people not wanting to stay in there. So we have fewer people filling the pulpits. We have more distrust built up in the institution. We have people fanning the flames constantly with all this stuff. And so uh, the idea that we're just going to walk into a pulpit or walk into a church, walk into conference preaching or anything like that and understand um, that we're going to have a trust built up there. I don't think we can take that for granted anymore. And so um, I think that's our, unfortunately, our task that we're looking at is rebuilding that trust. And how do we, how do we go about that? And so that's the, that's the inner wrestling I had. And, and I kind of put out there to see what other people felt. So what does it mean or, or what does a sermon look like? that is trying to rebuild trust. Um, if someone comes to visit your church, there's someone that is distrustful of institutions, especially the church. What does it look like when you're preaching a sermon about rebuilding some type of a trust? Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, so the the church I'm serving at now is uh, First Res Fort Worth, and so down here in Texas, and a great church, been here about a year. Um, it's really interesting though, because I there's three worship services and all three are very, very different. Um, first worship service of the day is um, in a chapel, kind of a smaller space. It's usually me and about 20, 30 people. And um, it's kind of easy to create an intimacy feeling there. Um, we're in a room, we're gathered, we're talking. Um, in that space, preaching is uh, much more relational with with that group and so um, rebuilding trust there just by the nature of the space itself kind of helps with that task um second service is usually um a little more contemporary or as contemporary as presbyterians get i guess i could say <laughs> and so um but that's in a, a different space as well it's kind of more a, a circle people are all around and a little easier to do it in there as well um the last service we had 11 it's in the sanctuary and this is a big very classical, very traditional looking sanctuary. We have a processional in there. I wear my robe in there. We have pyramids in there. And so it's um, for people who struggle with um, trusting institutions, it's even that much harder in that space I found. And so um, a lot of my preaching um, has been trying to break the barriers between pulpit and congregation, I guess. And so uh, whatever boundaries we put up there, um, intentionally or unintentionally um they're very present in that space and i'm very aware of them and so um one of the um conversations that i used to have in preaching stuff when i was in south carolina i had a, a great mentor once said uh preaching it, done well preaching is not a monologue it's a dialogue amen amen, amen. and so you're trying to get kind of people to come back and participate with you a little bit and um so i, I think we tried to do a little bit of that as one way to kind of break the barrier um, because you don't want people seeing themselves apart from the church. They need to realize they are the church. Mm -hmm. um, when you're preaching, you're not the one up there worshiping God and they're just watching you. Uh, we're all worshiping God. Um, we're, we're 
together in that effort. And so anything to break down that barrier, I think I tried, but uh, more than that, I think the content of the sermons um, means so much. Um, I think there's ways that you can talk about um, failures of the church, failures of institutions, failures of being human. I, I think just being real about that kind of stuff is one of the best ways you can do that. Um, if people think that you're pretending to be holier than thou, or if they think that you're putting on an actor show, it's not really going to resonate in the same way. It's not going to help you rebuild that trust. Um, people don't trust things because they're perfect. They trust things because they can see who they really are. Mm -hmm. um, I put something in that article too. I was talking about, um, uh, I think it's Daniel Abrahams. I got to remember now. He had something in there, but he's talking about stand-up comedy. Um, and I just love this because I heard somebody talking about preaching and comparing it to this essay before. And they got up there and they're talking about stand-up comedy is everyone thinks that the comedian just needs to be authentic. They just need to be real and that takes care of it. Well, that's what you're putting out there, but then there's also a second side to that. And that's the, the trust that you're trying to build up. And so not only be authentic, um, but you, you want them to trust you. And so you need to be authentic to them in a way that they can receive it. Um, be authentic in a way in which um, they might be open to engaging with. And so um, I think a lot of the preaching has to do with that. Now, are we, are we confusing them with exegesis? Do we throw too many Greek and Hebrew words at them? Um, can we can we relate it in different ways? Can we talk about real life stories? Can we um, connect um, Jesus's message to the message that they're hearing each and every day? Um, let them hear God's voice speaking into the real world uh, in that way. So I think content's a big part of that, but I think there's other barriers we wrestle with. So, yeah. So when you're talking about kind of restoring trust, and I think we then talked about pastors that are leaving the ministry, that kind of comes down to trust as well, that there is a, a loss of trust in the institution um, that then makes them want to leave. So how does preaching help pastors regain trust? Because sometimes the first person that we're preaching to is ourselves. Um, how... How, are, how is preaching helping pastors regain that trust in, the, in God and in the institution? Uh, Dennis, now you're preaching. Keep going. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good word. And I think um, you're right. I think it was Tom Long who said, um, preach a sermon to yourself first before you preach to anybody else. And so mm -hmm. you're spot on with that. And, um, and, and I will say, so um, I've had a lot of friends in the midst of the pandemic step out of their current context of ministry. Um, and I will say, knowing their individual situations, there's always a story behind a story, right? Um, knowing their individual situations, that was what was right for them and their families. Mm -hmm. um, there's a tremendous amount of pressure and a tremendous amount of tension that's been built up. And so um, I don't think anyone stepping out um, is, is wrong on them. Um, it saddens me for our quest to rebuild trust, kind of like what you said, but I don't think it's necessarily the wrong way for them. Sometimes we have to take care of ourselves in order to take care of other people. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's a, a very valid point to make. Um, but with the people stepping out and stepping away from the pulpits and vacancies in the pulpits and more that we have there, I think um, it really is um, a struggle to rebuild that trust. And so 
Uh, those churches are not only feeling the lack of leadership and lack of presence right now, but they're not getting the same word. They're not getting people helping them connect to God's story. They're not helping people um, step into um, God's narrative in that way. And so um, I, I do think that's a struggle there, but uh, in terms of the, the pastors themselves, um, I think there's a lot of, uh, what's the, uh, Rob Bell called it death by a thousand paper cuts. Um, I had a clergy coach once tell me that um, too many pastors have been um, eaten to death by minnows. Mm. Um, but it's kind of the idea of it's, it's little slice after slice, little bit after bit um, that kind of eats at you and kind of tears you away. And so um, sometimes just getting in the pulpit and being honest about kind of where you're at, um, what the scripture says to you, um, if you agree or disagree with it, um, just being open is a very freeing moment. Um, not getting up there and trying to have three points in a poem that wraps everything beautifully into a nice neat package, but getting up there and say, I really wrestled with this this week. Um, I struggle with why Paul wrote that. Um, here's some other scriptures that don't seem to agree with them. Um, here's what it might mean. Here's what I don't think it means anymore. I think there's just something very liberating in that. So um, to be able to get up and to preach in a way that you can demonstrate that vulnerability and that authenticity, um, I think that helps not just the congregation rebuild trust, but I think it helps the preacher. And so uh, when you're able to enter that space with the openness, I think it's helpful to all parties involved. And so, but yeah, I do think uh, rebuilding trust between preachers and the church is also that maybe that's a different episode for you, Dennis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's actually one that I want to kind of work on because that's that is a big issue. And oh, yeah. I've known oh, yeah. a lot of people who are leaving the ministry. And so I'm just curious about what's behind all of that. Oh yeah. Well, and, I, and I'll say I am I am spoiled rotten in my current context and even in my past congregations. I've had congregations who've allowed me um, to be open like that in the pulpit. Um, not all churches do. Um, I, I've guest preached places and I've gave sermons that riled people up that I was shocked by. And I thought, well, why are you upset that I said that? I, I just questioned why it was phrased that way. And so it's kind of a, um, I think people, I, I say that as a very spoiled person um, and very blessed person who served in the congregations I've had. And they've allowed me to have that space um, and kind of entered it with me, but it's, that's not the case for everybody. So mm. Yeah, there was an article that actually you wrote back in 2011 um, that talked a lot about how preaching is about helping people enter into a story that's larger than their story. How does that happen? How do you? How in your preaching have you been able to basically connect people to basically God's story? And yeah. that's something that always fascinates me as well. Is you know, knowing that our story isn't the only story out there, that there's something larger. Um, yeah. Uh, talk about bears to put up. I remember writing something one time and I, I put a line in there. It said, um, meeting the overarching meta narrative of our world. And um, someone wrote back, they said, use language people care about. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, okay. So I, I, I didn't mean to quite put a barrier up there, but um the overarching meta narrative of the world. And so um, I do think there's a story beyond us being told 
Um, and it's that story that's interesting to me. Um, I, I can I can tell you all about my story from here and there, but I mean, it's it's essentially kind of boring. I mean, if you think about it, I've got um, different things going on. You have different nuances. Everyone has that, but it's the larger story that kind of captivates me. Um, and that's the kind of the story that God's telling. And so, um, I mean, if you think about the, the ongoing story of the Bible from the very beginning there, um, we start out with some beautiful poems about what it looks like for God to have creation. And that's, that's a story that's being told very different than the other stories of the near Eastern world back then. And, um, this wasn't formed out of a war. This was formed out of God wanting to create space to create something in God's image. Um, to to walk with it, to partner with it, to covenant with it. And so uh, from the very start, we have a very captivating story. And then uh, you see the people in the Old Testament being complete goofuses and messing up time and time again and making horrible decisions. Um, but God's with them and God walks with them. And so um, going into the New Testament, some figured it out. Jesus comes, shows us the way. What do we do to Jesus when he shows us the right way is, yeah, march him up the school hill. Let's take him up there. That'll learn him good. And, um, even that doesn't end the story though. And so, um, it's that ongoing story. Um, I'm obviously looking at it through the lens of God. Um, I like to think of God watching the world and God telling a better story than I see currently. And so, um, I do think God is at work renewing and restoring and reconciling and, um, all those great passages and, Acts 3 and Colossians 1, and you get all these stories about God uh, participating in the world still. And so um, to talk to that story and to speak to that from the pulpit um, and then trying to get people to see themselves as a part of that story, it adds purpose and meaning. Um, it adds a little bit of oomph in their step there. Um, I had a, had a neat guy, uh, John Rotman was a preaching professor of mine at 1.2. Uh, he got up there and he said, um, I used to have signups for prison ministry in my church and uh, I never got anyone to sign up. And so I started telling stories and he said he was working down in Angola prison and he started telling stories about how he walked in one day and met a guy and then heard the guy's story. And then next week he invited him to come up and uh, read part of the liturgy. And then the next week he brought a friend with them to come read part of the liturgy. And then he said a prayer and then the next week brought someone else and they, I had a Bible passing all this stuff and eventually got to the point where they didn't need John anymore. And they were just going and reading the Bible and telling stories and praying prayers and, and talking through this. And he said, I still go. They don't need me. I still go sometimes and just watch. And he said, wouldn't you know, after I told those stories, I had more people than I could fit. Like they wouldn't let me bring in more people. And so um, it's just an interesting way to think about preaching. Do we give people a a checklist that they have to meet each week um, because they're already coming in tired and bloodied and bandaged. So we're we giving them a checklist they have to meet, go do this, go do this, go do this. Um, that will make your life better. If you do this, 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 um, or we invited them into an ongoing story uh, that's captivating and worthwhile and exciting to participate in. And so, uh, yeah, I thought I'll always remember his example of that one. And, at the end of it, I walked up, I said, well, actually, Professor Outman, I kind of want to go to the prison with you now, too. <laughs> I want to go see it. And the way you talk about it, it was just so powerful. And so, uh, yeah, I think there's ways to invite people to see themselves as a part of God's story rather than trying to 
problem solve and troubleshoot and checklist and bullet points and yeah. So, you know, when we talk about and, and you brought up the the concept of um, meta narratives, you know, obviously the story of God is not the only narrative out there. There are other um, meta narratives that people are dealing with. Yeah. So, how do you? deal with those narratives um, that are out there that are kind of telling people a different story um, and usually a story that's not as um, positive or um, salvific as, yeah. as God's story. Yeah, great way to deal with that. Um, to be honest, I usually deal with them slowly. <laughs> um, and that's just, um, I think my nature, I, I process a lot. Um, I remember I was in... Um, South Carolina when um, Emmanuel AME happened. Um, horrible, horrible tragedy. Um, I couldn't talk about it for a couple of weeks. Um, I just couldn't bring myself to address it yet. Um, I think I said something earlier, um, being able to be open and vulnerable from the pulpit is, is a very therapeutic thing. I don't think preachers should ever do their own therapy from the pulpit. I think it's a horrible idea. I think it can be therapeutic for you to be open and free like that. Um, but I don't think preachers should use that as their therapy stand either. And so um, I, I was afraid that if I would have addressed it too soon, it would have been that for me. Um, I think it was two or three weeks after um, something in the scripture caught me and I had to kind of address it and I kind of went with it. And I remember telling a story from my childhood and, um, growing up in Kansas City, I remember um, we were on the normal bus route and we stopped by my friend Yorba's house and um, all of a sudden there's this smell that we couldn't get out of our, our nostrils and it was just so off-putting and we couldn't figure it out and Yorba wasn't out there and we were all weirded out trying to figure it out and we looked down there were singe marks in the grass and uh, Yorba had had a cross burn in the yard that night. And so um, that was my first experience of seeing that meta narrative right in my face um and so when i when i talked about this a couple weeks after it happened i told that story and i was still um i choked up and so i kind of started crying in the middle of it which um if you know me if you if you get to know me it's not uncommon i cry at least once a year in the pulpit i, I try not to it's very distracting uh for me and for them but um but yeah i just kind of choked up and i i broke down a little bit um I eventually kind of regained and kind of got to keep going. But yeah, there are some larger narratives out there that people try to make um, the focal point for everybody. Um, there are some larger stories being told that are not the right story, in my opinion. And sometimes you need to directly address it. Um, sometimes you need to name. This story is not our story. Um, this story is counter to our story. Um, if we want to participate in God's ongoing work, that means we cannot participate in that and kind of draw the line pretty clear. And so, um, and I think sometimes people are um, waiting for that. I, I think people know things are wrong, obviously. Um, sometimes people need that moment in which they can flesh it out for themselves and understand the implications of following this story versus that story. Um, see, I don't, I say that to say, um, uh, I, I process stuff. It usually comes back out when the scripture strikes me and 
we started addressing it. Um, I don't think I have any special knack or talent for that. I've seen some other people do it amazingly. Um, there was a sermon by um, Otis Moss up in Chicago, and he got up there with his father. Um, so I guess this was Otis Moss III and was preaching with his father. And he got up there and he, um, he started telling a story about something about um, encountering one of those narratives that was not helpful, one of those bad stories being told out there. And he ran into it. And all of a sudden, his father jumps in. And he's like, now we've been there before. We've heard that story told. This is not the first time. And they went on with this dialogue back and forth about going through the same story being retold 30 years later, um, same hateful speech being thrown out 30 years later. And they just kind of went back and forth with it. And it was such a powerful word and it was such a, a meaningful um, moment for anybody there. Um, I, I think there's certain preachers with a definite knack and gift for that. Um, and I think everyone has to kind of find their own way to do that. And so when there are other stories being told, um, we need to be aware of that and we need to respond sometimes and find the right ways to do that. One of the things that I remember, um, I've read a lot of stuff from Frederick Beekner, and yeah. one of the things that he talks about with preaching is that it's kind of like, I believe, he, I'm trying to remember what he said, it's opening a vein. Mm. basically talking about vulnerability yeah so how does a pastor kind of show that vulnerability without it being exploitative i think you talked about you know not doing therapy in the pulpit yeah. um but that is a big temptation to do it do that yeah. um but how do you be vulnerable without it kind of becoming all about you um great question i think you need people around you always um if you don't have that built up in your congregation for people to hold you accountable um send your sermons to somebody before you preach them <laughs> so i think i think you need somebody to kind of hold you accountable for when you you go too far there um like i said i think vulnerable is a good thing but i think um the intention behind it matters and so if i'm if i'm being vulnerable to kind of angle something or to uh, push in my agenda versus what I feel the text is telling me, or if I'm being vulnerable for a reason other than trying to rebuild trust, kind of back to that article, or trying to um, help people participate in God's story. If I'm being vulnerable for a different reason, I need to be aware of that and I need to be called on that. And so um, ha having people around you, I think is so critical to do that. Um, one of the studies I did, or one of the things I did up in Chicago, um, you had to um, have a sermon feedback group for a little bit. If a preacher has never done that, I would highly recommend it. It's a very um, helpful but humbling opportunity for everybody to go through. <laughs> and so um, after the sermon that you would preach, people would give you kind of instant feedback. And um, it was very helpful in me understanding not only how I came across in my communication, but also uh, it made me evaluate why I was communicating what I was. Um, I had someone else tell me one time, trust your intentions. And um, I do trust my intentions when I'm aware of them. Um, and I trust what I'm putting out there more when I'm very, very intentional about what I'm putting out there, why. Mm -hmm. And so um, there have been times that I haven't done that in the past. Um, 
I'll give you, for instance, I did a, I did a sermon on loneliness once, and I was talking about um, loneliness um, in the ways in which um, it was spreading. We were having more loneliness going on. It seemed to be uh, all over the place, bowling alone, Robert Putnam stuff, kind of getting into sociology. And then there's a study that came out and um, the study said something along the lines of loneliness is contagious. And so not only if you put lonely people together, does it not solve it? Sometimes it makes them feel more lonely because they're seeing other people's loneliness. And so it's an interesting study. The way I handled it, um, I was trying to come up with a uh, clever illustration and I threw it out there and this was I'd probably been preaching for three or four years at this point I was trying to come up with a clever illustration I said can you believe loneliness is contagious now and I said something without really thinking about it and um, the next week I had a, a widow come and sit down in my office and oh. she said how dare you come and talk to me about loneliness in a glib manner um, you and your wife and your two kids up there trying to lecture me on loneliness as the disease. And I thought, oh, wow. So I just, it was a gut check moment for me. Um, I didn't mean any harm, but I also wasn't clear with what I was meaning. Um, and because of that, I, I hurt her. Um, and uh, I needed to own up to that. And I needed to realize that when you're in the pulpit, when you're speaking um, God's word into a community, um, you need to have... Um, the intention figured out. You need to know why you're saying what you're saying and bring it with a purpose. And so, um, yeah, that's a lesson I'll never forget. And that was before my sermon feedback group days. But um, when I started one, she was on it because um, I needed her. So, have you seen uh, any kind of a change in people becoming more trustworthy, feeling more trusting about churches with with other people as a result of your preaching? Mm. So good question. Um, so I switched context about a year ago. Okay. Um, great time to switch in the middle of the pandemic, right? Yeah, that was that was hard. Um, but I switched context about a year ago. I think over the course of my ministry in my last congregation, I was there about seven years, and around mark two or three years in there, um, I think my sermons became a little bit more freeing for me and for them. People had gotten used to me. We had built up some trust at that point. Um, and I got to have some good conversations with folks after that, Mark, um, people that I didn't agree with. And um, they'd come up and they'd argue with me. And I remember uh, one guy came up, he's like, Brian, you're wrong. I love you, but you're wrong. <laughs> so like, and then we just had an argument about it, but it was one of those things where he, we had built up enough trust we rebuilt it to that point um, between me and him, especially uh, that he did not agree with. I said, he wanted me to know that, but he also wanted me to push back on him. Um, and so to get to that point, that was a pretty profound thing for me. Um, individual sermons. I, I am so, I'm so low in my respect for my individual sermons. It's not one sermon. I don't think does much. Um, I think, um, longevity and preaching does much. I would like to think that um, in my current context, there's four of us. I would hope that all four of us are speaking and these sermonic events over time add up into something for people's journey. And so I think that over time, preaching can lead towards transformation. Um, and I think preaching should lead towards transformation. And so um, individual sermons, I don't know, but I do think that the cumulative effect 
of preaching in the right manner can definitely rebuild trust and find ways to reconnect people um, back into God's word, into God's community, uh, into God's story. Mm-hmm. Does that answer it? I'm not sure if that answers I, I, it. <laughs> I think it does. I, you know, I think it's, it's interesting that you say that because we kind of live in a culture where I think we expect it to be one and done. And yeah that there will be this magical sermon that will do everything. And that's, this is more something that builds up over time. It's more of an art um, than it is just kind of a very much a serial kind of thing. And then you're done. Um, You're, you know, I think each parts of the, the story is kind of a, a chapter. And so, you know, I, as I'm, kind of bring up all these things about books and obviously TV, but I think that's kind of where I'm thinking of is that, um, you know, a lot of people now, especially if let's say on, on television, a lot of television now is more is, is arcs over an entire season or maybe two seasons. Yeah. So that one story, it's not just one story. It's, it's part of a larger story. And I think that that would make sense that you're not, someone's not going to have their life changed just because of, of one sermon. Nah. I mean, that might happen, but very often it doesn't. Nah. Um, yeah. 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 I'm with you on that. And I think there, there's powerful stories about people having moments in church. Rarely do I hear that connected to the sermon. <laughs> and so um, people, um, uh, Sarah Miles has a great story uh, in her book. She talks about coming to faith later in life and she was walking by and the church's doors were open and she looked up and they were at the table and it's through communion that she came to faith. Um, and, and so, I mean, there's stories like that. And then there's other ones who go to um, um, revivals or something like that. And it's like, it's this prayer that just affected them and they don't even remember the words of the prayer. They just remember the feeling of it. And so I just, I think sermons are a small step. I think the the worship is is the big, um, the big atmosphere, the the bigger picture there. And um, so yeah, I I love preaching. I geek out on preaching. I read all about it. I like to talk about it. I have such a low opinion of preaching. <laughs> and so in terms of um, in terms of the effect of one sermon, uh, I just don't think as much um, Easter sermons. If you think about the number of Easter sermons any congregation has heard um do you really think what you have to say on that day is gonna uh, tip the scales uh, finally or change something I, I would hope that it adds to it i'd hope it adds to their understanding of the good news uh, of resurrection of what god's doing i hope it adds another little block to their chain there but um i mean the amount of sermons that any congregations heard spread out over their individual lives and together as a community you know, i mean yeah, one sermon does does good um, or does harm, unfortunately, but it, it doesn't change everything. So, and I think that's also free because it helps us remember it's not all on us. Yeah, um, I think it's it's probably a blessing that um, I'm married to a church musician, um, and it's weird because my my husband grew up as a pastor's kid at Lutheran, yeah. but God he's also a church man. musician, and so. It helps me to remind me it's not about me. It's, you know, that song can also help someone tell a, tell a story and maybe yeah. bring someone that it's not, you know, I'm not, 
I'm not all that. And that's, also, that's good to know. <laughs> I had a, um, I had a, there was a friend of mine in seminary with me who was also uh, played the organ mm-hmm. and he made some comment one time. He said, well, the sermon isn't good this week, but don't worry about it. The hymns make up for it. <laughs> and like, it's true. I think God, God speaks in all these ways. And so for us to, it's almost, I mean, we could go as far as it, it's idolatry. If we put that much emphasis on the sermon, like that yeah. is not the only thing we're doing there that day. Um, and if it is, we've lost our way. And so, um, but I, I do think that God speaks to us in the midst of worship. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, the sermon is one small part of that. And one sermon, especially is one very small part of that. So. Which then kind of brings to this point is what do you think is the value of preaching? Um, yeah. you know, it's not the central part of the service. It's, it's a part of the service. But it actually has some value in it. What? How would you describe what the value is? Yeah, thank you. The uh, I did a I did a course a while ago on. Um, it sounds way fancier than it is, but it was um, executive certificate in religious fundraising, and so it's through the the Lake Institute and great program. Um, but sitting in the room, half of us were leaders of congregations, and so we had pastors and rabbis and folks like that. And then half were nonprofit leaders. Um, and we got together and we're talking through stuff and, and we were all jealous of their mission statements because they all had very clear mission statements, right? They all knew exactly what they were about. And so um, had very clear mission statements. They were all jealous of us because they said, where else in the world do you get uh, 20 to 30 minutes every week of undivided attention to speak to your people? Mm. I thought, wow. And so I didn't even think about that but they said if we had any sort of uh platform or microphone or pulpit like you have to communicate our message with our supporters with our community with the people who are supporting this nonprofit, if we had any sort of thing like that um we would take full advantage that'd be our top priority um it made me remember um that there is some uh, tremendous power and privilege that comes with preaching. And so um, even though I have such a low opinion of it sometimes, um, the ability uh, to spend time in God's word and reflect on God's word with other people present to help them to reflect on God's word, it's a tremendous privilege. Um, nowhere else in our culture do we do something like that weekly. Uh, in which we have people's attention for that long and engagement. Um, people don't show up to church and listen to a sermon uh, out of obligation most of the time. They show up because they want to. They want to engage in God's word. Um, and so the idea that we get that weekly is unheard of in all these other places. And so, uh, yes, I, I was reminded of that in the midst of that. I do think preaching uh, has a tremendous ability over time, over the long haul, to help work towards that transformation of God's people. And um, we need to remember that as preachers. Well, I think that that is probably the best place to end. And I, I do wanna thank you, Brian, for this really engaging conversation. I'm hoping, I, I, I think it will be of, of great help to other preachers that are out there um, of how preaching matters. Um, are there any places or web addresses that people want to know more about what you've written or uh, uh, kind yeah, of contact yeah. you? 
Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Dennis. Um, thank you for having me too. Um, thank you for your podcast. Thank you for your ministry. Thank you for all you're doing. Um, yeah, I mean, they can find me at um, briancristophercoulter.webnode. Um, they can find me there. You can Google me. I pop up um, the Preston Outlook article. Uh, if you want to put a, a link to that and somewhere in the, the show notes there, um, that's Preston Outlook has great stuff. And I've been writing for them for a long time. Uh, but yeah, you can find me there. And uh, I'm at First Presbyterian Church of Fort Worth. And so fpcfw.org. Um, okay. Great church, great community, doing some amazing stuff uh, in Texas and beyond. And so um, glad to be here. Glad to be part of it. All right. Well, thank you so much uh, for taking the time. And um, hopefully we will talk again soon. Sounds good. Thank you, Dennis. Right. You're welcome. As we close, um, I have said in a recent episode that I, I only want to close with a call to action, one call to action, not 50. So this is my call to action for this episode. Consider leaving a tip. If you like what you're listening to, if you like listening to good content about mainline Protestantism, where it's going, what its future, its future consider leaving any amount that you can. You can use the link in the description. As we close out this episode, I want to leave you with another quote. Uh, another quote that about preaching that comes from the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. Now, sometimes we might think that preaching is all about how well we speak or how well we can put the sermon together or even what the congregation actually thinks of the sermon. But listen to what Kierkegaard says. He says, People have an idea that the preacher is an actor on stage, and they are the critics, blaming or praising him. What they don't know is that they are the actors on the stage. He, or she, he would probably mean, meaning the preacher, is merely the prompter standing in the wings, reminding them of their lost lines. So that is it for this episode of En Route, the podcast that is at the intersection of church and Maine. I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. Thank you so much for listening. Take care, Godspeed, and we'll see you soon.